0: Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email Art of Wargaming Podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. you to the Art of Wargaming on the E-Firm Network. The Jedius. The next level. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and I am flying solo on this particular episode. Our resident Thumbs is feeling a little bit worn down, and so he couldn't make it today. And so I'm gonna actually take this first little part of the intro to say a few nice things about him while he's not around. You see, our our resident Mr. Thumbs, Sir Thumbs, was our realm leader here for quite a long time. One of the longest-running elected realm leaders that we've had. And the whole time he was doing it, he's been working at his job, a local grocery store where he, uh, as he's talked about on the show before, he uh, comes in at a very early time. He begins moving things from an early uh, time in the day, from the time he gets there. And that's what he does all day. Lifting, carrying, sorting, lifting, carrying, sorting. It's a very physically demanding job on him uh, because again, he works in like the deli. So he's dealing with like frozen meats and like large cuts and that sort of thing. So he he already has a very grueling job that he tends to but he's also extremely attentive in his personal life you know this is a guy who who cares he cares so much about his friends he cares so much about his community about his realm he he's constantly involved in trying to help people out i remember when this uh, pandemic first started he wasn't even the realm leader at that point remember he was he was uh, he kind of stepped down from that and even despite the fact that he was no longer in a leadership position Immediately when the pandemic hit and people were worried, he was reaching out and saying, "Hey, if you need me to go grab groceries for you, I'm your guy. If you need me to go grab some some medication or some some stuff from the store for you, I'm your guy. I'm already out here on the front lines, so it's no skin off my back to do things for my friends so that they can remain safe. Like that's the kind of stand-up guy that Thumbs is. And so on top of all of that, so he, he worked he worked this massive job, and then he'd come to practice because it did, he didn't get Sundays off. That's our that's our uh, practice day." And so he'd come to practice after he gets done working all day and he'd still have the energy to fight and be a realm leader. So for those of you who, who maybe be new to a, to an organized community like this or to Bellegarth or something like that, um, let me explain to you a little bit of what a realm leader does. A realm leader has 10 parts to their job. Okay. The first part is administration, you know, making sure that the realm stays up to date, managing the realms, finances, that sort of thing, paperwork you know, administration stuff. The second part is planning, looking ahead, trying to figure out what a positive direction to take the realm in is and what the the other realm members are wanting to do with their organizational experience. And then it's eight parts of HR, Basically, like, it's, it's eight parts of helping grown adults manage their conflicts. It's eight parts of coming and hearing the same complaints over and over and over again from people who are the source of the complaints themselves. Like, it, it, it's, it can be a very mind-numbing and grueling job, and he stuck with it for a long time. So, when I tell you that he is now our vice president, the vice president of all of Bellegarth, I want you to know that we have a hard-working man at the till. At this point, like he, I I am, I am so proud that we started about, he started a little bit before me, but we started around the same time and it has been really cool to watch my buddy uh, grow as a person and grow within this community and, and just take on more and more responsibility and handle it. And that's the thing. Like, it's not that like he takes it on and flakes on it or anything like that. Like the man handles what is put in front of him and he, he doesn't seem to bite off more than he can chew, but even a seemingly Unstoppable force like thumbs needs a break in 2020 and I think he stands as a good reminder to all of us that no matter how strong you are, no matter how tough you are, no, no matter how much you care, no matter how much you want to go out and be an active member in your community in these tough times, you also have to remember to take care of yourself. You're not much used to everybody around you if you burn yourself out or if you you get yourself into a place where you're having a mental breakdown or you, where you can't function, if you push yourself to that level, You can no longer serve the people that you love. You can no longer be of service to your, your friends, your family, your community. And so I, I, and again, this is, there's a lot going on right now. And I don't want to say that, like I said, I don't think that Thumb's bit off more than he can chew. I think that he's just like the rest of us in 2020 and he needs a breather. So uh, like I said, I wanted to say some nice things about the guy. Congratulations, man, on getting that VP slot. You earned it. You deserve it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it. Uh, you were a great Rome leader and, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in international, uh, Bella politics, I guess. So congrats again, man. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you when you're back on the show. A couple more things to talk about in our intro real quick. Um, I just picked up the Space Marine Codex. Now again, this is coming out two weeks after I record it, so it's going to be old news for you guys. But if you are a Space Marine player and you are on the fence about picking up this codex, let me tell, let me put your minds at ease. I love this codex. It It is fantastic. I, I was a Dark Angels player in 8th edition. I'm probably going to be making my very own chapter in this one because the rules are so easy for it and they provide a way to upgrade your dudes. One of the issues I had with having a homebrew chapter was I'd have to leave behind my my big heavy hitting characters like Azriel, like Belial, because it, and then you'd have to settle for just captains and lieutenants. And I was like, well, they've got some really cool abilities. They've got some really cool aura effects and that sort of thing that I don't want to leave behind. And so I was so hesitant to start my own chapter, but with the rules the way they are in this codex, not only can you come up with your own very viable chapter tactics that rival the ones that are for the the, the primary founding chapters, but you're able to promote from within. So, uh, you know, if you've got a master, you can promote them for a couple extra points to a chapter master. And that gives them uh, additional aura abilities, access to different warlord traits, uh, a, a different relic, and, and just makes them all around better. And you can do this for several different characters. Like you can take a tech marine, make the master of the forge. You can take a chaplain, make the master of sanctity, and it just makes them all the better. So. Uh, I highly recommend picking up this book. I'm not going to go into the same detail I did when the 9th edition rules came out because this book is absolutely worth picking up. If you are a Space Marine player, um, you obviously need this to play in 9th edition, but it's also just a, a, it's a really cool book. It's got some great artwork, some great background on not just Space Marines, but also the Primaris Marines, of course. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like it. I, I think Game, Games Workshop did a really good job with this codex, and I'm looking forward to using it in the, uh, this 9th edition, so... Uh, let me know what you guys think of it. Uh, some of those stratagems, some of those relics are pretty cool. So uh, if you guys want to drop a line and, and uh, we can talk about this codex, I'd absolutely love to. The last thing I want to talk about before we get into the real meat and potatoes of this episode is uh, we've got some friends who are doing a, like a YouTube channel right now. And they're, they're doing really well. I, I, this, the last episode and this episode deal pretty strongly with training, personal training and, uh, and other forms of physical training. And, uh, we've got some friends, Emily and Sethra, uh, who are running their own, uh, kind of like a, a workout show. It's, it's about dieting. It's about working out. It's about, uh, finding that balance between, you know, play and work and, and all these things. And it's, it, it, they're doing a really good job with it. They're absolutely slaying. It's called Valky bees, kind of like Valkyries except like bees as in like the insect at the very end, Valky bees, And, and, uh, again, they're just doing amazing work. I know they're, they're intending on moving to a podcast medium as well, but right now I think they're, they're just doing like a live cast thing on YouTube. And, uh, if you're looking to get your game to that next level, if you're looking to upgrade a little bit in your, your physical repertoire, I highly recommend their show. They're, they're just, they're doing a really good job. And, uh, and and definitely you should definitely go support them man time goes so much quicker when you're sitting here by yourself and you don't have somebody to banter with i'll tell you that but i think uh that's good for our for the intro and you we're gonna get to what you guys came here to to listen to so let's get into this episode the next level Much like the Valkyries. this show aims to be able to help you get to the next level, whatever that might be, whether you're just starting out and you want to get some competency under your belt with uh, with the combat sport, or whether you are a veteran who seems to have plateaued and you're looking for that, that extra edge, you're looking for that way to continue your development and continue your way upwards. And so what we're going to be talking about in this this first section here are drills and gear. Uh, according to Vegetius and according to kind of how he interprets the ancient Romans having done it. So drills are to build your strength, but gear helps you with courage. And I kind of want to um, we'll, we'll talk about that concept a little bit later, but I want you to keep that in your mind as we're going through this. So let's talk about some training technique and drills. Our last episode we dealt primarily with a lot of entry level stuff if you're if you're just getting started. The last episode was really good for some beginner tips. This one, we're gonna develop that a little bit more. Uh, we're talking about some more advanced training and, and kind of developing those ideas from last episode. So again, this is this is going to be, unfortunately, a primarily physically wargaming-based episode. We're not going to be talking too much about uh, big tactics or about um, anything that might apply to Warhammer 40k. So if you uh, Warhammer 40k players are listening, I, I hope you're still able to get something good from this. But uh, in, in the next chapter, Vajedia starts to get into more tactics and large group things that apply more toward intellectual wargaming. So again, some of this is going to be able to apply, but I just wanted to give you guys that warning real quick. So the first thing is not to cut, but to thrust. That's what he talks about. That's the the name of the section in the book is not to cut, but to thrust the Romans, the way that they fought, if you, if you can imagine a Roman soldier in your mind for a moment, they have that very large shield in front of them and they were armed with uh, a smaller sword And the, this sword was not actually designed for slashing. Like that wasn't necessarily the point of it. Like if you're watching these, these old Hollywood video uh, movies or something like that, and you're seeing them go around and be really dramatic with these slashes, it's really good cinema, but it's not the way that they fought. It's not economical at all, especially with that, that gear set. And so the, the, the overall thought here is shot economy, economy of force. Um, the thrust is extremely efficient. You've got all of your force going in one direction. It's quick, and it, it, it's able to puncture. You know, stabs within within physical wargaming are absolutely devastating. They can take somebody off their feet. I've received many stabs that have knocked the wind out of me. There's a lot of force that can be generated with this. And so, if you're thinking about it from Vegetius' perspective, if you've got an entire army that is just locked together with their shields and just stabbing outwards, that's kind of the idea of what they're going for here. But of course, within uh, Bellegarth uh, as, as, a, as a general rule, but physical wargaming as a whole, slashes generally aren't allowed in the first place. They generally do not count as a legal hit. And so we're going for strikes in our things as well. You want to incorporate strikes into your, your shot repertoire because I I, I came into Bellegarth um, from fencing. And so the vast majority of my strikes coming in were stabs. And while stabs are good, and, and while they're very effective at the right moment, they're not They're not going to win you the game every single time. And if everybody knows that all you have in your playbook is stabs, they're going to know to to defend for that. They're going to know to block for it. So you want to incorporate a large amount of different strikes and stabs into your technique as this helps develop an overall um, comfort on the battlefield. And during these strikes and stabs, you're going to find that you expose yourself to different degrees. One of the reasons that Vegetius argues for stabbing over a slash or a, or a strike is that in a lot of cases, the stab does not leave you nearly as open. If you think about most people, when they throw a shot, they're going to wind up a little bit, which opens them up a little bit on that, on that striking side. And then after they finish their shot, like once you reach out, your arm is way out there at that point. Usually you're going for something. And if you miss and you whiff and you blow past, you have a large amount of exposure on that side until you recover. Now, uh, with, training and with drill and with exercise, you can get quicker. You can get better reaction times and you can make it so that you do not open yourself up as much, but you still have to, to keep in your mind the fact that right before you strike and right after you strike, you are actually quite vulnerable. But in the same token, stabs also leave you open. You know, if you're, you're stabbing a nice centerline stab for somebody's chest and they parry it, block it out of the way, your force is still going forward. Which means if they're quick enough they can react while you're out of position and and do some real damage so with both of these things you want to be training for as small of motions as possible you're not going for a huge wind up and when you're swinging through uh unless you're doing a spin i wouldn't recommend going very far past your opponent because the the more flourish you have the more flare is on either side of your strike the more opportunity your opponent has to interrupt you if they're paying attention And we always want to assume that you're going against an opponent who is as good as you, if not better. Because if you assume otherwise, you're likely just going to be beaten uh, by surprise constantly. So always assume that your opponent is as good as you, if not better, and prepare for that. When you're doing your strikes, when you're practicing your stabs, try to use as small of motions as possible. Um, try to keep your elbows as close to your body as possible, because that allows you the most control and it allows you to be able to recover if in fact you, your, um, attack was unsuccessful. The next thing that he talks about, I actually had to go on a little bit of a quest to figure out what he was talking about, because he, he, when he's speaking about the drill called Armatura within the book, it's a, a section where he talks about, you know, the importance of this drill. He talks about how the ancients used to always practice this drill and how they put it at the forefront of their training and how modern people have neglected this drill and how it has led to a decline of the army. And so he goes on this massive tirade about the importance of armatura and the dangers of neglecting it. However, in the entire section, he does not once say what armatura is, doesn't describe it. And so I went into another Roman text to see if they would describe it. And they also did the same thing. They talked about its importance. They talked about the need to drill not only new, but veteran recruits in this, in this Armatura drill. Uh, But they don't, um, they don't say what it is. And so I actually had to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica to look up what Armatura was. And disappointingly enough, it's, it's just sparring. Remember in the last episode, we were talking about using weighted weapons to practice. You know, if you're, if you're practicing against your Pell, you're using a, a shield that is twice the weight of what you were normally using on the field and you're using a sword that is twice the weight of what you're normally using on the field but in armatura they want you to use a realistically weighted weapon against a realistically fighting opponent so what we would call that in this current day is just sparring you know they're just they encourage you to spar and they encourage you to spar as much as possible my skill level has never improved at the rate that it did when i was living in a fighter household I mean, there were, let's see, one, two, three, four, five of us living in that house at one time. And, you know, anytime we'd get bored, anytime we were sitting around and and just kind of getting tired of staring at each other, you say, well, you want to go fight? We'll go out in the yard and have half hour, hour worth of fighting. And we go back inside, watch some TV and then go back out and fight. And that constant practice, that constant practice against a live opponent was so important not just for my development, but for, for everybody who lived in that house, you know, I, I, it was myself, Thumbs was there, my apprentice Turkey Feathers lived there, Sir Tethian lived there, uh, Warma- Master Hakon lived with us as well. And these are all very good fighters. If you've crossed swords with them, you'll recognize that they have really good technique. And I think part of it was that, that, uh, that crucible that we put ourselves in, that, that fact that we were living together and fighting each other so often, it, it really helped us. And it also helped us develop our own styles. You know, we learned how each other fought. We learned how to, how to exploit one another's weaknesses. But through that, we learned uh, how our bodies moved best. We learned how to not break ourselves down. Because when you're fighting all the time, there's, there's an economy of force that just comes naturally because you don't want to wear on your, your, your joints. You start to realize that throwing shots a certain way hurts your wrist long term or hurts your shoulder or your, or your elbow. Or if you, you know, you, you stance differently, or if you don't burn out quickly in the first couple of little bit, your, your energy lasts longer. And so that constant drill, that constant fighting against live opponents who are also looking to get better is very important. And it doesn't matter at what level you're at. It doesn't matter what level you're at. And this is largely what we do at practices. You know, as we're practicing to go to events where we're basically just drilling against one another and sparring, obviously this year without practices being on, it's a little bit difficult to practice this armatura. For those of you who are lucky enough to live in a fighter household right now, uh, you obviously have roommates that you can be practicing with, and I envy you greatly. Uh, for instance, um, in in Warhammer, uh, some of our friends, Sumatai, Juniper, Angus, Alistair, they all live under the same roof. They're all Warhammer cats, and so they can play games whenever they want to, and I am so jealous. I am so jealous. I don't have any fighters in my household. I don't have any uh, war gamers in my household. My wife occasionally will um, humor me with a game, but uh, I mean, it's not as often as I would like, but if, if she played games as often as I would like, she would never get anything else done. So I guess the point of this one is, you know, once we are able to get back at it, absolutely engage in as much, much sparring as possible. But if you, you live with somebody, if you have a spouse or a roommate or a boyfriend or a girlfriend who, who uh, enjoys fighting as well, you know, it's it's not just a good way to improve but it's also a good way to burn off some steam i tell you i i feel so good after i hit my bag Uh, after i after i do you know spend a half hour 45 minutes in there doing drills i feel so much better just in general afterwards so uh long story short find yourself a sparring partner the next part of this uh this drill section is this emphasis on carrying burdens uh remember that the roman army had to march quite a long ways and then usually set up camp, and then have to be ready to fight. And they're can't carrying the entire camp on their backs. Uh, you know, everything that they need personally is in the, is in their rucksack. So it was very important for the Roman Legion to be able to hike with burdens for long periods of time. For us, again, it's it's not as important. You know, when we go camping, we usually drive into the campsite, drive right up to where we're gonna be putting our tents, unload our stuff, and then the longest walking that we have to do is typically going back and forth from the field. Now on certain event sites, like if you're, if you're going to Ragnarok and you're on the other side of the site, you know, that's a, that's a mile hike uphill. So that can be quite uh, burdensome. And if you don't want to be tired, when you get to the top, it might be better to train a little bit more in this way. So kind of what he's suggesting here is either hiking or walking with weight. Uh, I know that I've talked about the great hunt before on this show, but we used to hike to the top of a mountain nearby in full kit, you know, as much armor as you wanted to wear with, with your, your shield and your sword, if you wanted, and you'd hike, hike to the top and then you'd fight and then you'd hike back down in that full kit. But what that did is it meant that, you know, fighting in that kit on flat ground was easy. You know, you knew how to move in it. You, you you learn the economy of motion within that kit itself by doing that training. And I know it looks goofy. I know what I'm suggesting is going to get you strange looks from the other people on the trail because it got me strange looks from other people on the ta- trail. And I don't blame them. You know, I imagine going for a, a nice little hike with my family or my dog on a Sunday afternoon and you're, you're coming down, you're coming through the woods, and then here comes a man in full armor just trucking past you, Gives you a little nod, leaves you a little wave, but keeps walking past. Like that's, that's unusual. I get it. But in the same token, um, it's also extremely useful. You know, I, 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 I'm trying to get back to that point. You know, I've, I've kind of had a little bit of a dip in my, my physical being, but I'm trying to get back to that point where I can hike in armor again. Like that's, that's a goal for me. So if you've got a hiking trail nearby, this is a good socially distant exercise that you can be doing to continue to keep your, your endurance up. The next thing is evolutions, and this is something that not nearly as many realms do, but that I am gonna to try to implement in my realm, and then I might suggest you do in yours. And these evolutions that he talks about in the book, we would define now as drill downs. So if you've been in marching band, or in you know the military, or anything along those lines, you'll know what a drill down is. And and the idea is that you, you just, you're practicing moving together. You're practicing, and, and, and like we said last time, the point of this isn't necessarily to, this one isn't necessarily an exercise for the body, but it's an exercise for the mind. It's to get used to fighting next to somebody, get used to being a part of a large group and not just thinking about yourself as an individual, get you used to hearing and taking orders immediately. Um, so this, this drill is extremely important for people who want to be a well-oiled machine. I know I've, I, I, I think I mentioned last time that the uruk used to do when I was, when I was a part of them, um, they used to do drill and we used to go to an event and, and in the morning, everybody would get up and you'd march around and practice moving and practice turning and, and, and like maintaining a coherent shield wall. And it helped us so much on the field. Like the the, the at that time, they're, they're still a good force, but, uh, their, sh- their shield wall coherency at that time was just tops. And part of that was because of these drill downs and not many units, not many realms do it, but I would highly suggest if you've got a larger unit, and especially if you engage in line fighting, drill downs are going to be your friend in a, in a big way. And I, and they're just fun and they're just fun. Like I, I may be a nerd in that way, but I loved marching band. I loved the military and I, I just enjoyed marching together and singing cadence. And I don't know, I could be weird, (laughs) but, uh, but it's, 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 it's advisable. It's definitely advisable. And the last one of these, uh, in this little section of training techniques and drills is the idea of a monthly March. And, and this is to keep everybody in good shape. And so Vegetius was saying, get the whole crew together and you go on a long March together to practice, you know tearing down your camp, setting up camp and everything in between. But for us, again, it's not so much about that as it is about the fitness. And it's just, it's fun to be able to hike with other people. Not only is it safer, especially in an area, I just watched a, a video out of Utah of a man who is getting chased by a mountain lion and they are far less li- likely to tango with you if you've got a large group with you, no doubt. You know, they don't, they don't want to mess with a large group. So hiking in a group is, uh, is, is safe. And it also, uh, you know, helps you think about keeping pace with other people. And he recommends doing a group, these group hikes in varied terrain in full kit. So weapons, armor, all the works. Um, but I'm going to add one addendum to this that I'm sure Thumbs would agree with. In Vegetius' time, they didn't necessarily... Have as many people walking around to have to worry about trail erosion or other like we we have the hiking trails we have need to be maintained in their way because if we keep people on hiking trails they don't destroy the surrounding environment uh by just their presence people are extremely disruptive and so one of the things i would advise to you here is even though you're going on hikes on varied terrain please please stay on the trails they are there for a reason your state maintains them or your country maintains them for a reason and so it's, it's important to stay on the trails so that, that nature can be preserved for everybody else later. You know, if we all just walk all over willy nilly, um, it makes it harder. I, you know, Thumbs and I both worked trail crew. And when people are, when the trail is in a nice, easy place to maintain, that makes it a lot easier on the trail crew, uh, to do things as well. So these are just some additional training techniques and drills that can help you get to that next level that can help you get to, a uh, uh, a place you want to be. Get past that plateau. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the arms of the ancients, what they used to go to battle wearing. And I, I actually, I, I, I vibe with this. Like the, everything he suggests is basically my full kit. I don't really go on the field unless I, I have my full kit on me. And, and that's for several reasons. But one of the big ones is one of the things that he talks about in the book. And that's so that you can fight with proper courage. When you have armor on, when you even, like, and, and in something like Balagarth or Dagger here, the armor is not invincible. You know, an arrow will go straight through it. Somebody hits it, it's broken, the next person to hit you gets to gets to kill you. You know, like, armor does not make you invincible. Some games like Amp Guard, where you have, the, like, the metal armor that gives you, like, ten points or something like that, might be, you know, it might be a lot cooler, but the idea of armor isn't that it makes you invincible, it just gives you a slight edge. It gives you the knowledge of that you've got one free shot. You know, I, when I, uh, was able to win a tournament in Dirdmarion. There was a, a, what's, I think it's called a champion's tournament down there. And when you enter, you can can wear anything you want, you know, full armor, uh, and then whatever weapon combo that you want to use, whether it be a a shield and some sort of one-handed weapon, you can use a a big two-handed weapon. I chose to go in with two shorter swords because when I was looking around at my competition, I saw that the vast majority of them were doing a flail and a shield or a large red weapon, which told me one good thing. Both, both of those weapon combos are slow on the rebound. You know, they're fast, and, and, and they can do some really, really devastating damage, but they are slow on the rebound. And so if you can get in quickly enough, absorb that first shot, and then just volley, you've got an advantage. It's all, it's all about the speed game. And so that's what I did I, I against the 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 flail and shield users i just kind of popped my arms up so they had an easy shot at my torso and the second that i saw them start to throw it i stepped in so that they they still hit me but it was on my armor so that one shot was absorbed but then i'm close enough that they can't respond to the fact that i'm just throwing a flurry of shots from those two blues and and just the sheer amount of shots that I was able to throw was able to overwhelm it. Against the Reds, I would wait for them to swing. I would usually sacrifice an arm or a leg. And then the same thing, just get in there really fast, throw a bunch of shots and, and hope, hope that uh, they landed. And they did. I mean, I, I happened to walk away with a, a victory from that tournament and I, I'm very proud of that victory. But it was partially because I had courage, because I knew that, uh, that I could step in, take that first shot and be okay to go through with my plan. And this, I mean, it's, it's on the field too. Like I've said, I stand differently on the field when I'm wearing my armor. It's more imposing, it's more intimidating. And that's partially because I don't have fear. I don't, I'm not projecting any sort of nervousness. I'm not projecting any sort of apprehension. I am there, I am ready to fight. And it is apparent on my, and, and I see it in everybody else too. I, I see it in, in just about everybody I know who fights. When they put armor on, there's a energy that comes to them. There's a, a filling of the spirit and you can sense it, you can see it. And, and it not only affects the other people on the field, but it helps you. It puts you into a, a, a state of mind where victory is a very possible outcome and something that you're willing to go for every single time. And so, yeah, fighting with the proper courage is huge. And, and I love going out there in my full kit, my full armor. So what does that mean? What do the Romans define as being in full armor? Uh, so what they define it as, as a, is a cuirass, So it's like a a chest piece, some sort of, uh, for them, it was an all encompassing, uh, chest piece, but some, something to carry your, or, uh, to cover your chest and back. It's a helm, you know, that's very important. Um, even, even on fields where I don't see missile weapons, I will still wear my helm because headshots happen. You know, you're, you're not always prepared for them. You're not always looking for them and headshots happen. And I'll tell you this right now, a headshot, when you're wearing a helm hurts far less than when it's just hitting your head. Uh, I don't know what it is about that little bit of leather that seems to take all of that impact out, but, uh, yeah, I get far less. And then if you get hit in the face, you got protection. You're not getting hit in the eye. You're not taking a a sword inside the mouth or something like that. Yeah. Helms are, helms are definitely important. And then, uh, they talk about having a shield. Uh, Not all of us are shield fighters, but for the Romans, uh, they wouldn't, you know, a, a normal infantry kit is making sure that you have your shield nearby too. And then he recommends greaves, which are like shin guards or some form of leg armor. I don't personally care for greaves just because I find them to be ungainly and I don't feel like I move right in them. I use a, um, a pocket brigadine, like a um, leg covering. So what that means is uh, basically imagine a large square of cloth with a bunch of smaller squares of cloth sewn into them. And in those smaller squares, you've got little bits of leather. And so what this does is it makes a segmented piece uh that when you combine it so i've got four of these one for front one for back one for right side one for left side and they all overlap over one another and it's uh it creates this this kind of shell around your legs uh i don't know an armored dress if you will and it's very i find it to be very effective it gives me full coverage i don't have to worry about like with the greaves a lot of times you're it's open on the back it's open on the back of the leg so you're you're vulnerable to an attack on the knee or on the back of your calf, whereas if you've got uh, this brigadine, you don't have that same concern. You know you're covered from head to toe. But you know I find I, I know of other people who think that uh, the brig, the pocket brig is extremely ungainly and unwieldy to, to move in, or the kind of the physics of it don't agree with the way that they fight. So whatever whatever works for you, as long as you've got chest armor, head armor, and some sort of leg armor, you're 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 with this. I don't usually fight with arm, with armor on my arms. Like I've got, uh, there's there's some shoulder pieces on my, on my torso. Like I've got some, oh gosh, the name is escaping me. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. The armor that goes on the shoulder. I've got some of those, but I don't actually wear any bracers. I find that they mess with my wrists. They they kind of mess with my shot throwing, and so I, I choose to forego that particular protection. Vegetius doesn't seem to have a problem with that, but I know other people who go out there and they enjoy the full armor. The point of it is. Armor is good. I used to have an argument against it. I used to be vehemently against it. For the first probably 10 years of my fighting, I didn't wear armor. I didn't want armor. You know, I only built armor because it was required for my apprenticeship task, but I never wore it. You know, the the idea was I felt like armor would make me weak. I felt like armor would make me slow or would make me lazy but now i'm looking at it as a, as another edge it's another it's another card i can play in order to have another small edge on the battlefield does armor mean you're going to win every time absolutely not you know i've beaten fully armored opponents while not armored at all and even the best armor has chinks in it you know i every every now and then i'll go to throw a shot and i'll feel like i'm i'm doing really well i'll see somebody coming in i'll be like ah oh, that shot's going to going to hit my armor i'll be fine and then it gets me in the armpit where there's where there's no covering it's a weak little slot and so it's like, oh, I'm not invincible. So you got to be careful that you don't get that false sense of invincibility from it. But as long as you're training with it right, armor isn't a crutch. It actually helps you become a better fighter in a lot of ways. Not to say that you have to fight with it every single time, but it's good to have it as an option. And, and it's better to know how to fight in it and not use it than to not know how to fight in it and find yourself in it um my first chaos wars i was entered into a tournament uh with the uruk because they were they were too small they didn't have enough guys for it and i was eager to get in there and so they threw some armor on me it was my very first event um and they threw some armor on me and i fought terribly i mean i would i would have fought terribly anyways i hadn't been fighting that long and i really wasn't that good but even the small bit of skill that I did have disappeared because I had never fought in armor before. I was not used to the weight. I was not used to the, to the extra physics consideration when moving or when throwing shots. So the armor was a huge impediment for me at that point because I had never trained for it. I had never been into it. So I would at least recommend getting yourself some armor so that you know what it is. You, you never know. You never know when your unit is going to need you for a certain thing and you're going to need to put on some armor and, and have to perform. The next thing that Vegetius brings up is actually really interesting to me. I did not expect to see this style discussed in an old military textbook or an old military manual, but I guess, you know, the the, uh, the truth applies that there are no new ideas, that we're all like everything has probably been done before, except for things like, I don't know, Instagram or, or a lot of the electronic stuff. I don't think it necessarily applies there. But in terms of tactics, in terms of ideas, uh, somebody has probably thought of it. Somebody has probably done it before. A very common, well, it's not that common, but it's a a very commonly good combo is to go onto the field with a backstrap shield and a bow. And this is something that the Romans actually recommended doing as well. If you can go onto the field and you've got a couple, you don't even need that many arrows, just a handful of arrows and then a shield. And the idea is that, and, and that shield has a backstrap on it, not because it's gonna stay there, but because it's out of the way while you're drawing and using the bow. So you enter the field, uh, the fight starts, you're able to volley off a few arrows, maybe get some kills that way. And then you're able to switch to melee. One of the guys that comes to mind that does this a lot is cannabis you know, he's, he's, and he's an amazing shot with the bow. He's an amazing fighter. And so it's just a very lethal combo. I mean, this guy goes out there in full armor and he's got usually a backstrap shield and a, and a weapon. And he's got his bow and he's lobbing arrows. And the second somebody starts to get close, he drops the bow, and switches to the melee. And this takes practice, by the way. This takes a lot of practice to be able to use this style well, because you don't want to be out there just hung up on on your shield trying to get it situated while somebody's running up on you. So if you're going to try to use backstrap shield and bow, you definitely want to practice that transfer. Absolutely. Like, uh, it just, just set up a little space in your garage or in your training area and just go back and forth, you know, using the bow, using the bow, using the bow, dropping shield, you know, reset, and then just keep going until you can do it in a smooth motion until it's a flawless smooth motion because then you might have some success of doing it on the field because trying to do any of these things quickly when you're under pressure when you've got somebody running at you it takes a lot of practice it takes a lot of confidence and a lot of skill Uh, and you want to get some of that before you get on the field in the first place so backstrap shield and bow outstanding combo. I've used it myself. It's actually quite common in my unit to go with this. Uh, we we are a smaller unit and so we can't necessarily field a dedicated archer core all the time, and so this takes the place of that. You don't need a dedicated archer core if everybody is an archer. And also a melee person. You know, the the ability to switch back and forth is extremely strong. It's one of the reasons, you know, switching to Warhammer 40K for a second, is one of the reasons why I like the Space Marines so much. You know, they can flawlessly switch from being very good at ranged to very good at melee. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily have a weakness there, and it makes them very effective in, in combat. They don't have a place where you can exploit them. You know, like the, like the Tau, for instance, are amazing at ranged, but by and large, they're not that great at melee. They have a few units that are pretty good at melee, but, but that's not their strong suit. And so if you can force Tau into a melee confrontation, it typically goes very poorly for them the opposite example, orcs are not good at shooting at all. Again, they have a few units, uh, like the the grot cannons or something like that, that might have a decent ability to hit something. But most of the orc things are hitting on a five up or a six up. You you know, they're not, uh, they're not super rangy. So what you want to do there is avoid a fight. You want to keep the orcs at range and make it so that they can't close with you. That's the, that's the best option there. So But as a person, as a one fighter on the field, you want to make sure that you don't have that weak spot. You don't want to, and so even if you're a dedicated archer, I recommend having a sidearm, a dagger, a sword, something along those lines, so that you're you don't just look like an easy target. Even if you don't intend on using it, you know, there's days I go out there and I'm like, I'm not doing any melee. I'm just going to be doing archery today. But even just having a sword on your hip, or or nearby makes people pause makes them think about it because they're like okay I can't that's not just a uh, a defenseless archer you know they shoot uh and and normally like if an archer shoots and they're trying to reload that's their weakest time that's the time you want to rush them but if an archer has a sidearm all they have to do is drop the bow drive the draw the sidearm and suddenly they are a melee combatant so long story short this is absolutely effective i've seen it work very well on the fields that I've fought on, and I highly recommend it to anybody who is uh, looking for that versatility. The last thing we want to talk about is proper stance. And there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. Uh, Vegetius recommends that you stand with your sword forward, right? So like you're, you're, you, 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 you're kind of squared up, but you have your sword foot slightly forward. And this is pretty common. I, I know a lot of really, really good fighters that fight with this stance. But the opposite is also true. If you, if you go shield foot forward, it gives you a lot better defense. If you're trying to brace that shield against a spear or against a charge or something along those lines, the shield is much more effective if you've got your whole body braced behind it. And he also recommends side stance, you know, uh, making sure that you stand in, a, in kind of a profile. And again, there's different places where this is going to be useful. In a one-on-one fight, if you're only using a single sword, absolutely Getting yourself as small as possible, standing in a side stance is extremely effective. It narrows down the number of shots that your opponent can throw and narrows down the number of places that you're weak. It's very smart. But also, you know, convexly, if you're in a shield wall, line fighting, and you're trying to push forward, being able to square your shoulders behind your, your push is also important. So honestly, st- with stancing, I recommend you find it for yourself. I found my stancing through dance classes. You know, I started taking dance classes when I was going to the university, partially because I had heard that football players took dance classes in order to work on their footwork. And I said, well, if, you know, football players are taking dance classes, there's no reason I shouldn't. And I got in there and it helped my footwork so much. My stancing and my ability to move on my feet and know where my power was and where my balance was, was so much improved by dancing. And so if you can get into that anywhere, if you've got a dance studio somewhere, if you're, if you're in school and they offer that, um, in school, I highly recommend just doing even just a little bit of that. I'm not recommending, you, know, you don't have to be on dancing and the stars or anything like that. You don't have to, <laughs> you know, get to a level with it, but just it helps. It honestly helps. And I, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who's, who's struggling with the footwork aspect of things. So, uh, that has been, you know, our section on drills for strength and gear for courage. You know, we want to, you're looking for for ways in your daily or weekly life to keep your strength up and keep your endurance up, but you also want to make sure that you've got the proper gear for the fight. These two things make you a uh, a competent and ready fighter. So speaking of gear, we're going to expand that a little bit in this next section when we talk about ranged weapons. section, I'd like to talk a little bit about ranged weaponry. And this is a way, an, another way for you to take your fighting to the next level is by incorporating any number of these ranged weapons into your on-field presence. There are a number of ranged weapons that Vegetia speaks about in this section, and conveniently, they are also the same weapons that are available to us in Belagarth. I don't know if, if some of these are available in other physical wargaming uh, communities, but they are available in Belegarth. And so we're going to kind of talk about them within that context. So the first one we're going to be speaking about is the javelin. This is a Roman favorite. If you see pictures of Romans and and see pictures of the military and and paintings and that sort of thing, oftentimes they are featured with a a form of javelin, something they would have called a, a pilum or a pilum. Now, when you're practicing with a javelin, Much like with your practicing with a a sword, you wanna be using a weighted javelin, something that is weighted roughly twice the size or or twice the weight of your normal javelin. And this will help you get really good technique and really good strength in throwing it. Now, I wanna caution you on that, that it still needs to be balanced correctly. You wanna make sure that when you do weight your javelin that it's still balanced the same way that your regular javelin is going to be balanced. Because if you get used to throwing a weighted javelin that has a different balance point than your regular javelin, once you pick up that lighter javelin, it's gonna go all over the place. It's gonna go absolutely haywire uh, because you're generating a lot of force, expecting more weight. However, it's not gonna be as on target. So that's a cautionary measure. If you do choose to practice with with a weighted javelin, Do please make sure that it is balanced; otherwise, it's not going to be much good to you. So the javelin, the way that the Romans used it, was in a a massed volley. You know, they would they would take to the field, and they would there would be a massed volley before the fight kind of took place, before they came to melee range. And this is extremely effective. At their time, a lot of this was designed as a hampering measure. Uh, Many of their pilum were designed to have a weak point right behind the tip, not to break but to bend. And the whole point of it was you'd throw it at somebody and it would get lodged in their shield or in their arm or in their leg. And then the weight of the javelin would bend it and make it extremely ungainly for movement. You know, imagine trying to to walk with a javelin that is bent, like trying to get under your shield and dragging on the, on the ground in front of you. It's going to at least slow you down at the very, very minimum. And, and, you know, if you've got something like that sticking out of you, you know, that's even worse. So this massed volley beforehand is extremely effective and a lot of different g- groups use it. I've already mentioned the Urakai; been a policy of theirs to, for everybody to go onto the field with at least one javelin so they can do a, a pre-volley before they get to arms. I know the EBF, uh, the Elite Blood Falcons, uh, do the same thing. They'll go on and just about everybody has a javelin. And before they engage, they do this, this volley. And not every javelin is going to hit. That's the, the point of a massed volley is that you know even if 70% of them miss but 30 of them hit, that's 30 hits that you got before you even got to melee range, you know? And then you've also, if you're moving quick enough, that javelin can also be a distraction. They may not lodge in people like they did for the Romans, but a lot of folks will be distracted by the presence of a javelin. They'll think, ooh, maybe I should bend over and pick that up. I can now use it to my benefit. But if you've thrown it and are moving at them quickly, that moment's hesitation, that moment of indecision between whether or not to pick it up, distracts your opponent. And if they do try to pick it up, and you're already on top of them, it gives you a massive advantage. So this massed volley, before the fight takes place, is is absolutely effective. I've definitely seen it used on on national fields, and to great effect. To to yeah, it's wonderful, and it's also dual purposed. If you if you think about the javelin, you know, not only can it be thrown, but it can also be used as a thrusting weapon. And so, you know, I've I've def- I've seen people who go onto the field and all they've got is a shield and some javelins and they'll throw some of them and then the other ones they'll use for for kind of close melee support and then go around and pick up their javelins and then and they function just as like a mobile little turret and it's it's very effective so the the javelin is an extremely useful weapon i recommend at least having one in your repertoire because they're extremely useful i need to get a new one mine mine broke down because i used it so much the the tip finally blew out so i need to need to make myself a new one or, or purchase a new one before the season kicks off because gosh, yeah, javelins are just so useful. The next weapon he talks about, we touched on a little bit in the last section, uh, is the bow. And uh, the bow is, of course, has been widely used by armies up until, of course, the, the musket and more effective firearms were used, but the bow has been an extremely effective weapon for a long time. And there were Entire armies that were almost primarily based around archers. We talked about in the last episode how the Persians like to have a very large archer corps because, again, if you can just be lobbing arrows constantly, it's, it makes the the battle go very effectively. If you can kill your opponent over there and remain whole yourself, that's that's the art of war. You know, like trying to trying to get out of the fight without a without a scratch on you while decimating your opponent. That's that's a perfect fight. So the bow absolutely makes that possible however combat archery is a totally different beast than target archery you can be an extremely good target archer and then not know what you're doing when you get onto the field i'll give you an example me uh, when i was younger uh, my grandfather made me a longbow. he was very into hunting and he was very into kind of the art and the, and the the culture behind hunting he made his own bows and he made me a long bow. And I, I treasured that bow for years until it, it finally got dry and broke. Um, but he taught me how to use it. He taught me how to string it, taught me how to draw it without fighting the weight of the bow. And so I was able to use this 120 pound longbow at a very young age uh, without a whole lot of effort. Because if you know how to draw one, it, it actually isn't that hard. And so I went, when I was, gosh, I was either 12 or 12 or 11 when I won a a state Montana archery tournament, it was at a event called the bear shoot. And we don't actually hunt bears, but they set up a bunch of different targets all around this big course. And so it's a, you hike and you shoot and they'll set up the targets at varying, uh, lengths or varying, um, distances from where you're supposed to stand. And there'll be things like little, like foam moose or foam bears or, or elk or turkeys or something like that. And then you shoot Your score is recorded and you move on. And I was in the adult league. I chose to enter as an adult and I was out there with all these old timers and these old timers had these really fancy compound bows. Like they'd have all these different tricks and widgets on them, range finders. I mean, just the works. Um, One of those, uh, like like one of those little wrist bands that hooks onto the bow that you can draw it without using your fingers. I mean, these guys were decked out and I won. I've got that trophy inside right now. I, I won that tournament and they were baffled by it. I mean, they had all these tricks and whistles on their bows and I just had this very simple long bow. I was a, a short little scrawny kid and I was going out there and, and it, was, it was in the technique. You know, you, you draw, you get to your point, you breathe, you visualize the arrow going to your target and then you release. You never take your eye off the target and, and uh, for whatever reason it worked. And so I considered myself a very good archer. You know, I, I'd won this tournament. I, I, I can shoot really well. I can, you know, pull a bow all day long and not really get tired. I was like, I'm a great archer. So I got into Bellagarth, into physical wargaming, thinking that those skills from, from target archery would translate over and make me an exceptionally good Bellagarth archer as well. And in, in very specific instances, if somebody stops moving, stops paying attention, and is just kind of standing still on the field, that target archery stuff still comes in handy. However, we do a combat sport. (laughs) People are rarely stationary on the field. And a lot of the times they're coming straight at you, which uh, incorporates a whole new level of stress that you do not experience in in target archery. So combat archery is a totally different beast, where target archery is about setting up your perfect shot, taking your time, and, and really visualizing with the arrow. Combat archery is more about instinct a lot of the time. Like you're, 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 I fire from the hip quite a bit. I don't even aim. It's a matter of like you draw, you bring it up to a, a space and then you're just, and you're shooting and you're relying mostly on instinct. You're relying mostly on intuition and you're in motion the whole time. Whereas with target archery, you can, you can plant your feet and feel the solidity of the earth beneath them. A lot of times in combat archery, you are on the move. You're either trying to go towards somebody or move away from them and, and still remain an effective presence on the field. So, I guess what i'm saying is there's there's no harm in practicing target archery you know that's one of the best ways to to get the basics down you know setting up a a target in your in your backyard or in your garage and practicing your aim i will never discourage you from doing that but also understand that it is totally different when you have someone who is moving at you or moving towards one of your friends and 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 just the stress of the battlefield it it can't really be replicated in a training environment you have to just fight you know, armatura as it is. You have to have those live uh, live opponents to be able to practice against. And so this is, this is something to remember. Target archery is still absolutely valuable. If you're a target archer, those skills will definitely shift over, but you're going to need to learn to be a little bit more loose with it. The next comparison I want to draw is between volley fire and sniping. Very few units are large enough to field a dedicated archer core. You know, just a, a large number of people who are dedicated archers so volley shot isn't really an option for us when it is again it works really well there's a reason that volley shooting was used for for a very long time without throughout world history and it's because it's effective if you can block out the sun with arrows it's hard to defend against that definitely hard to move or make make any sort of progress while you're trying to defend against that so volley shots are absolutely effective they do waste arrows you know, they're, they're not as precise or anything like that, but they, they, can, they can really do some damage if you've got the numbers for them. Volley shots depend on numbers. You need, I would say probably at least, bare minimum, 10 dedicated archers on your side to be able to, to do volley fire. And they need to all be on the same page, you know, which means they need to have practiced together, which is one of the reasons why volley fire is, is usually kind of looked over in our, in our community. More common, we have sniping as our as our form of combat. Uh, if you don't have the, the quantity, you have to go for quality. And so this one is about making sure you pick your shots, making sure you're not wasting your arrows, and making sure you're going for high-priority targets. Now, those high-priority targets are going to depend on what battlefield you're on and who you're fighting, but as a general rule, spears are a great, great, great thing because spears can reach out and touch your friends, but you can reach out and touch a spear. And they typically don't have shields unless they've got a bunch of shields around them. But if you can find a a spearman who's kind of out in the open or exposed, they are a great person to shoot. A a person who uses a large, uh, uh, like cleaving weapon, a glaive, you know, a, a, a claymore, anything along those lines, they are definitely going to be a target as well. Uh, again, they often don't move with, with uh, a large amount of shield coverage. And so they're fairly exposed to what to what you need to do. And because they do so much damage, they are a good pe- person to eliminate from the other side so that they're not trying to destroy your team. You know, if you can take out some shield crushers, uh, your shields stay intact and you have a better chance of winning. I would generally avoid people who have shields or and definitely people who are paying attention. If somebody is looking at you, that is not your target. You know, if they look away for a for a second and you're able to get, to capture on that moment, then they're your target. But somebody who is paying attention should not be the person that you're shooting at because even if they don't have a shield, they can dodge, you know, they can they can kind of bring it up to their buddies if they got somebody nearby who's got a shield, they can be, they say hey, you know, come over here and protect me or pay attention to that person over there. So you want to you want to take out the unaware. You want to be going for people who are unaware of your presence. And then the last group of people that are definitely, definitely good for sniping are the loud people. Who on the other side is calling the shots? Who over there is is calling out where people are? Who is your, your Who are your commanders? Because even on a field where everybody's kind of mixed together and you don't have defined units or defined realms fighting together, it's just hodgepodge A versus hodgepodge B. Even within that, you're going to have people that emerge as leaders, people who are just naturally inclined toward that role. I have a background in, in military. I was a student first sergeant throughout basic, which is basically a a mini drill sergeant. I I did, I was a, a, a drum major in marching band. And so I'm extremely comfortable calling out orders. And that means I'm typically blocking a lot of arrows because people are trying to silence the person over there. If you can take away the continuity, if you can take away the person who is keeping everybody together and moving in one direction, that's a good shot. So again, to hit on that, if you're going to be going for the sniping technique, which is the most common one used in physical wargaming because we can't often field volleys, you want to go for any of those long-ranged weapons on the other side. You know, your, your spears, your glaives, your damage dealing weapons like claymores and bastard swords. And you also want to go for any of the commanders, anybody calling out orders. And then the last group you want to go for is other archers. Uh, that's, that's typically one of the be- my favorite games as an archer is engaging in archer hunting. And there's usually a duel that takes place. It's kind of separate from everybody else. Everybody else is engaging in their melee fighting. And then you have the two archers in their, their uh, respective backfields just trying to get that edge. Trying to eliminate the other archer. And so anytime you can kill an opposing archer, that's, that's outstanding. That's a huge victory. Uh, because it means one less person who can reach out and touch you. So if you can volley, volley is awesome but most often you're going to end up sniping. Just make sure that you pick priority targets. The other consideration with a bow is that there is a number of things to technique that you need to be aware of. In terms of position, you want to make sure that the bow is either straight up and down, if you can manage it, or slightly cocked to the side that is going to allow the arrow to sit comfortably on your hand or on the the arrow rest. And, and... Again, with target archery, I could go into a bunch of things about how you're supposed to draw back to your cheek and hold it there and how your, your foot stancing is supposed to be, but all those rules go out the window when you're dealing with combat archery. Uh, it, again, it's far more of a boxing stance, and I do far more shooting from the hip. It's less about distance and more about getting in close and being dangerous at a medium range for me. I also know other archers like Zuyon who will be standing like 100 yards away. You'll look away for a second and then you'll feel a punch in the side of your head. It was an arrow coming from Zuyon, because she is just that good <laughs> and she can get you from the backfield. I like to fight from about medium range, just behind the shield wall, because I find uh, that I can, I can be very useful. Even just with the, um, the psychological presence of an archer being that close and just... Even if you have one arrow and you're sitting there and you've got it knocked and you're just sweeping back and forth across the faces in front of you, people are going to hesitate There's, there's going to be hesitation there. And if your teammates are, are worth their salt, they can take advantage of that. The draw is the next part. Again, if you're doing a proper draw, you want to make sure that it comes back, rests at your cheek. So you're getting your, your full power there and that you're releasing. You're not, you're not throwing it. You're just, you're just letting your fingers go. So you're not throwing off the flight of the arrow. Now, again, this is different for combat archery. A lot of what I end up doing is shooting from the hip at the last minute at people who are rushing me as I'm trying to get away. And it's good to become uh, accurate at that as well. So if you've got uh, a friend nearby who, you, who can practice drills with you, just rushing at you as you're, as you're trying to shoot and get away, it's, it's a very good uh, talent to have. The last talent, and probably one of the more important talents to being an effective combat archer, is knocking. Just getting the arrow on the bow in the correct way. Uh, there is so much time that is wasted looking down and and fiddling with the fletching to make sure that everything fits right and then putting it on there and by then who who knows what could have happened around you who knows who could have shot you who knows who could have rushed you knocking is often one of the most time-consuming aspects of being an archer and so practicing knocking so that you're just good at it is not a bad idea I, i'm going to bring up Arshank, one of my absolute favorite people out of de i saw her win an archery tournament her very first year, that is unheard of. People do not win tournaments their first year in, in this sport. That is is—that is not something that happens. And it didn't happen just because, you know, of blind luck. It happened because Arshank, and, and she told me this, and so I'm going to let you guys know, Arshank would come home, and while she was watching TV or listening to music or something like that, she would sit on the couch and practice knocking the bow without looking at it. And making sure that the fletching was right. And just getting the feel of it. Getting the feel of it on her fingers. Getting the feel of what it, what it was like to knock the bow without looking at it. Her performance in this tournament was outstanding. She was sprint, the, the way that the tournament was run. I actually really liked the way that this archery tournament was run. They had two circles set up. And they, these circles were about 20 feet feet in dia- diameter. And then there was about 5 feet of distance in between the circles. The archers were put into their individual circles and they had to stay in that circle while trying to kill the other archers. They could run, they could maneuver around, but but they couldn't leave the circle. And so this was, this was really interesting because it it was far more mobile than most archery tournaments, but Arshank just killed it. I mean, I, I, I don't think I remember seeing her struggle against a single opponent because she had a massive leg up on her opponents because, you know, after the first couple of, after the first volley, you know, you knock up, everybody shoots uh, and you can shoot a couple of times, then it becomes a scramble of running around looking for arrows that you can still shoot, you know, at your opponents. So you still have, you know, a weapon <laughs> in order to engage them with. And R. technique was she would run, she would pick up the, uh, the arrow, like seamlessly knock it to the bow and bring it up and draw and shoot. Like it was just one fluid mo- motion. And she never once took her eyes off of her opponent not once. The whole time she was able to look at her opponent. So this meant that she was able to dodge when her opponent was shooting. She was able to take advantage of when her opponent was weak because she was never distracted by the process of knocking. She had gotten so good at just knocking on the fly that she didn't have to think about it anymore. And she accomplished the relative impossible. Again, I, I, unless it's a noob tournament where you've got all people who are under a euro uh, uh, in, it is so extremely rare. To hear about somebody winning a tournament their first year it just it's it's basically unheard of so Arshank is one of the first people to do it and she did it because she got really good at knocking so i i cannot recommend this highly enough i I did the same thing after she told me about it and after i I watched her just destroy that tournament i started doing the same thing i don't think i've done it with nearly the same dedication she did because i'm not as good (laughs) at it as she is but but it's something i definitely recommend because uh yeah without that distraction archery becomes so much more viable and then we've already sp- uh, spoken about targets of opportunity a little bit. You want to be going, again, for uh, commanders, for your damage-dealing weapons, for other archers. That's where you want to be. Uh, so yeah, that's the bow. An extremely useful weapon. Uh, a little tricky to learn, but once, once you've got it under your belt, it is such a boon to not just you, but you're also in your entire team. An archer can shift the course of an entire battle. An archer joining one team or another can shift that battle. They're very important. The last weapon that we're going to speak about in Vegetius's uh, text, he calls it the sling, but we just use rocks in Bellegarth. And I know there's a few other uh, uh, wargaming communities that allow the use of rocks, and I think they all should, because uh, what is more effective than a rock? You throw rock, person gets rock in head, person is gone. It's pretty easy. And it can be more effective than arrows. Remember that one of the slowest parts of the, the archery process is that knocking. If you've just got a bag of rocks nearby or or some rocks stashed on your person, all it is is a matter of drawing it and throwing it. It's very quick. And and from a medium or close range support role, rocks can be a lot more effective than arrows in this way. Also, people usually aren't expecting them. You know, when you've got an archer out there, they've got this big bow. They've got either a quiver or a large bundle of arrows in hand. It's pretty obvious what they're there to do. It's pretty obvious that they're a ranged fighter. Rocks can be far more subtle. You can again hide rocks on your person. You can hide a bag on your uh, on your side, or you can stuff them into the kind of the the sides of your shield or something. A rock can be a very subtle weapon where archery is very overt, and it's it can be a very effective combo. There was a whole year where I was, <laughs> I was I, I I really I was trying to make weapons, and they weren't very good, and I couldn't afford to buy weapons from other people, and so what I had was a shield and a bag of rocks, and I made it work, and it was it was actually, and it's something that Vegetius actually recommends too. He was talking about how the combination of, of sling troops who have shields can be devastating. And, and I saw, and I found it to be the same thing when I was out there. And again, I, you don't win every single fight. I'm not sitting here trying to say that it's a, a God level style and that anybody who picks up a, a, bo, a bag of rocks and a shield is just going to be amazing on the field, but it gives you this element of surprise. You know, people aren't expecting that most of the time, and you can get really close and and maneuver properly, and it it, it can be quite effective. I really enjoyed it, and it's it's also just a ton of fun. It's a good defensive weapon. You know, if you're defending a choke point or if you're uh, defending kind of like uphill or something like that, rocks are a very good defensive weapon. They keep people away. You know, if you've got rocks flying toward people's heads, all it takes is one to get in there and it can, it can cause some serious damage. You've got the psychological factor. Nobody likes rocks being thrown at their head. I know this from real life. I've, you know, I've had rocks thrown at me in real life and on the field. It's not fun. You know, you're, 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 you're sitting there and, uh, it's, it's a stressful situation because you do not want to get hit by it. So there's this much like with the archery or with a the javelin, there's the psychological factor. Uh, of people hesitating, of people being unsure of whether or not to advance, unsure of of when you're going to throw that rock. By getting inside people's heads, uh, you kind of uh, can drop down their effectiveness as a fighter. So I really enjoy it. I I highly recommend it. I know there's, I think, uh, I think Numenor, um, the realm of Numenor, outlawed rocks because they were tired of getting killed by them, you know you had these knights who 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 didn 't like the rocks because they had all this cool gear on they had this this aura of invincibility, and then some peasant would come by and hit them in the head with a rock and uh, and I honestly feel like that was an ego call <laughs> in a lot of ways uh, again Numenor is is free to make the rules that they want to make and i 'm sure they they have a valid reason for doing it. but as somebody who has studied military history, I will tell you that uh, You know rocks have been a time-honored tradition even in fully armored armies you know slings and rocks can still do a ton of damage and again the psychological factor can't be overstated here so within the course of this episode we have discussed a lot of different stuff we've discussed uh how you can do use drills for strength and gear for courage uh, and, and we kind of went through some training technique and drills to kind of help you get to that next level while reviewing the arms of the ancients and the the armor kit that can help give you that confidence to project yourself onto the field and then we discussed some ranged weapons we've talked about the javelin we've talked about the bow and we've talked about some rocks i think it's time to see all of this in practice a little bit so if you'll join me we're going to get into the battle of adrian Today is that of Adrianople. It occurred on the 9th of August in 378 of the current era. It was in modern day Edirne, I'm sure I'm butchering that, Turkey. Uh, it, it, at the time, it was in the Roman province of Thracia. It was involved between the Eastern Roman Empire, if you remember from our episode about the, the Roman Empire, it had split into the Eastern and Western half at this time. And so it was the Eastern Roman Empire against the Goths. So on the Eastern Roman Empire side, the commander was the emperor himself, the, the emperor of the, the Eastern part. Uh, emperor Valens was in charge of this one. It incorporated diverse units from all over the empire, which was fairly typical for the Roman Legion at this time, numbered anywhere from 15,000 to 30,000. So much like the last battle that we dealt with, this the death of Cyrus the Great, there are not a whole lot of reliable sources for this time period. And there's a lot of conflicting uh, information. And since we we can't necessarily know for certain at this time, we have to be good with estimates. So anywhere between 15 and 30,000 troops, but again, spoiler alert, by the end of it, they will have lost 10,000 to 20,000. That is two thirds of the overall force. We do know that. Regardless of what the overall troop numbers were, we do know that roughly two thirds of the Roman force was killed in this battle. Their opponents, the Goths, were uh, led by Fritigern, Ala- oh, Alathius, and Safrax. Uh, and they incorporated uh, a, a very, very, very diverse group of, of different ethnicities uh, that had come into the Roman Empire. You had the Thervane, the Grutons, the Alans, and other various local rebels that had joined in with this group. And they were numbered anywhere from 12,000 to 20,000. And their casualties are unknown but they were the victors here. But before we get into what, what defeated the Roman Empire, the outcome of this battle, we need to go back a couple of years to discuss the beginnings of the Gothic War, because the Battle of Adrianople occurred within this broader context, and it's important to understand why this conflict came into being. So, in 376, around 90,000 Goths were fleeing the Huns, and asked for permission to settle within the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, these uh, Goths were led by Fritigern and Alvivius, who were leading the Therving and Alth, Al- gosh, that name is gonna destroy me, Alathus Theus of the Grutans. So they were two different groups, but they were both kind of fleeing the Huns. They didn't wanna be a part of the Hun empire. Uh, the Huns were just wreaking havoc all over Eastern Europe at that time. And so they wanted to come in and join Uh, the Roman Empire. And this was actually fairly normal uh, for for various groups outside the Roman Empire to uh, come and say, hey, we'd like to integrate with what you've got going on. And the normal integration policies would involve recruiting a number of these exiles into the army. So any of the able-bodied men would be put into the army. And then you'd break up the remaining disarmed population and resettle them in smaller groups across the empire. And this was uh, to help them assimilate, to keep them from being like close together and, and kind of forming a, a separate culture within the Roman, uh, within the Roman context. And it was a very effective method of assimilation. Unfortunately, they had very, very low numbers of troops on this particular front. If you recall from our, our episode where we did discuss the Roman Empire, this was about the time that their borders were getting very weak and they weren't able to patrol them uh, in their entirety. So uh, the the lack of soldiers meant that the normal speed at which this would move uh, just didn't happen. They were sitting there waiting uh, for for quite a bit of time. And then also mistreatment was extremely common. Unfortunately, mistreatment occurred under the provincial commanders, Lupacinus and Maximus. And this is what led to the revolt. So let's talk a little bit about these mistreatments because uh, when I was doing some research for this, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I try to stay impartial. Uh, I try to look at history through an impartial lens so that we can learn the lessons without trying to impose our modern morality upon it. That being said, this was kind of horrific. So brace yourself. I mean, first off, many of them cro- uh, drowned crossing the Danube. That was the border that they had come to. And so uh, the first group, the Theravine, were allowed to, to to cross and many of them drowned. And so the other group was kind of left on the other side. Uh, the Theravine were, were on on this side after suffering casualties due to, to negligence in the crossing. And then there were inadequate logistics in the area. It was the army's job until these guys were, were kind of split up and redistributed across the empire to feed them. Because obviously they didn't, they didn't come with food. They, they want to farm, but they haven't been given any land to farm. And so there's supposed to be food being sent to them. However, the logistics of the area, as we mentioned, the army was woefully small uh, compared to what it would have normally been. And so the logistics were inadequate to really move that amount of food. This is, this is a small nation, 90,000 people, like, <laughs> coming in. Like, that's, that's crazy. Then it also was compounded by the fact that there were corrupt officials under Lupicinus, And so they were selling off some of this food before it even got to the Goths. And so what that led to, it was a mass starvation in these camps. And the Gothic families were forced to sell children into slavery for dog meat. The rate of exchange... One child for one dog, you know, that's, man, you know, we, we have a kid of our own in the house and just thinking about that kind of twists my stomach a little bit. Like if I was forced to either choose between starvation and, and selling selling a child into slavery, like that's that's a, that's a terrible choice. Nobody should have to make that choice. So yeah, I'm, I'm posing a little bit of my mora- morality on this particular one, but it's it's kind of hard not to. And so this was leading to some some pretty bad dissent like there was some rumblings there was talk of revolt there had been some incidents and so uh Lupikinus decided to move these two groups closer to his kind of base of operations in order to have a more secure hold on the situation they were supposed to be kept separate but the first group kind of slowed up a little bit and the, fir- the second group kind of sped up a little bit and that allowed them to kind of blend together and join their numbers and also their complaints so the leaders of, uh, of this group were invited to a di- diplomatic meal to kind of discuss the integration and to uh, a smooth transition. But during this meal, there was an attack in the marketplace and a guard is killed. And now, this is because the guards were refusing to let the Goths into the marketplace to buy food. Now remember, these are people who are starving to such a point that they are selling their kin into slavery in order to eat. So the fact that they're being prevented from getting perfectly adequate food right over there leads to conflict, it leads to violence and death. And so Lupakinus takes Fritigern and Alvivius hostage and kills their retainers. So knowledge, er, uh, word of the killing spreads outside and so the the seeds of revolt that had already been planted kind of spark off and this big angry group of goths is now really angry (laughs) and and bearing down on this on this uh, kind of fortress this town and fridegern negotiates his release he's like i you know if they know i'm alive if i can go back and speak with them we can calm down this whole situation and everything will be fine and so he's released in order to to kind of calm the Goths down who are now rioting. He doesn't do that thing, and how, can you blame him? Like I, you know, he's got some very valid complaints here, and and so he goes back out there and he's like, "Nah, let's burn this place down." Uh, and so more rebels in the area join the violence for various reasons. You know, some of them are are uh, also. Kind of displaced ethnic groups that are uh, sour with the empire uh, perhaps people who are kind of feel forgotten or neglected or abused and so uh, the province is lost the province just becomes chaos and and the rebels are kind of in control valens emperor valens requests reinforcements from his western counterpart gratian because he's got to deal with this and so he st- sends uh troops to deal with the situation but a virtual stalemate occurs for two years as these these rebels just kind of run roughshod over this area. So that's the the beginning of the Gothic War. You've got this this group of people who are coming into the empire in order to integrate. They were mistreated. They revolt. And now there's a very, very threatening military situation to deal with. So let's move forward to 378. Valens moves to take control of the situation himself. This has been two years of anarchy in one of his provinces, and it's starting to look bad you know, people already like Gratian way more. He's more charismatic. He has had better military victories. He has better relationships with, with the people, with his uh, governors and that sort of thing. So, so Valens is already fighting against this image of him as being the lesser of the two emperors. And that, that doesn't sit well with him. Again, in, in Rome, this pride, this honor was everything. You had to have this popular support in order to be Uh, successful. And so his general, one of the generals that he had sent in early that year, Sebastianus, had seen success. You know, it it didn't seem impossible. And and Gratian on his front had seen success as well. So Valens knew that he had to get involved or risk uh, having his reputation drop even lower. And so his reconnaissance goes out and reports that the Goths, at least in this particular area, do not have that many infantry and uh, and that it's going to be a cakewalk you know, it's going to be a breeze. So they count the infantry, there's not that many, and they're like, this is going to be easy. However, the cavalry was not there. The cavalry had gone off to forage. So the numbers that the reconnaissance team brought back were highly inaccurate and did not reflect the fact that they had a highly mobile section that was not currently present. So, of course, you know Valens is like, this is gonna be easy. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna walk in here and, and be a hero, and this is gonna improve my political situation. This is gonna solve this problem on my border. We're good to go. And so, uh, Fritigern himself offers peace to Valens. Um, but Valens, sure of victory, rejects it out of hand. You know, messengers and several generals, uh, sorry, messengers from Gratian, and several generals advise him to wait for Gratian to catch up, so they can combine forces and take Uh, kind of the main camp as a, as a large force, overwhelming numbers. But again, this would have been a a hit to Gratian, or this would have been a hit to Valens. If he would have allowed Gratian to come in, reinforce, and then that would have led to victory, the, the fear was the political opinion would be like, why do we even need Valens? Like Gratian is doing just fine. Like why, why are we, why are we doing this? So he's looking out for himself. And again, several of his generals say, don't do it don't do it. This is in an inadvisable situation. And so he decides to go ahead and, and move on the main Gothic camp. So Valens leaves his camp and leaves, uh, his kind of administrator, administrative staff behind. So the, the, all the treasury, um, most of the officials that are involved in like court dealings and that sort of thing. He leaves those guys behind at camp and then marches eight hours over difficult terrain. Remember his soldiers are in full pack, now one of the things i want to point out at this at this time is if you recall from our our discussion of the roman empire the issue with this is that the soldiers are not being trained to the same level this is around the time that vegetius would have been writing his book And one of the reasons Vigetius claims to have written his book is because the Roman army is not nearly at the height that it was in the earlier period because of neglect of drill, neglect of, of course, the the NCOs, just the, the military structure being different. And that's why these calls to reform are being made. And they're being made specifically about the army we're dealing with right here. So when Vigetius is talking about an army that is not at its prime, that is the Roman army that we're dealing with here. So they march eight hours over difficult terrain and they arrive tired and dehydrated they do not want to play or rather they just want to get this over with so the goths are camped up on a hill and they've got a wagon circle kind of around the outside they've got a protective uh, kind of uh, barrier on the re- on the on the outside and they attempt to delay the romans as much as possible because again they know that their calf is out there and that the calf is coming back the romans don't and so they're trying to delay the battle as much as possible to allow that cavalry time to get back. And they, they do all sorts of things. They burn fields in order to delay and have the Romans have to redirect. And of course, for any of us that have dealt with the smoke this year, we know that smoke is really annoying and definitely plummets your morale. So you're, you're coming in, you're tired, you're dehydrated, you've been walking through a bunch of smoke. And then once they got there, they started these negotiations for hostages. And just delayed and delayed and delayed as much as possible to such an extent that these roman commanders start to get really frustrated you know again they're they're hot they're tired they didn't necessarily train for this they are impatient they just want to get this over with they do not think that their opponent is worth this time and so they get overconfident and some of them attack without orders for instance the iberian prince bacarius attacks without support and of course, is pushed back uh, at the, you know, the left wing at that point starts to move up. And then as Bacarius is kind of falling back, the left wing moves up, left uh, kind of more supported, but at this time the Gothic cavalry return and the Romans were not expecting this. They, they their, their reconnaissance did not include the, go- the cavalry in the report. And so the, Ro- the Roman troops on that side are quickly surrounded and they go to withdraw to the base of the hill. But as they're going down, they're getting crammed together You know this this they're supposed to be when you're in in a formation you're supposed to be at a certain length right you're supposed to have a little bit of space between you and the other person so you have room to maneuver but as they're withdrawing down this hill already surrounded they are coming in closer and closer and closer to one another and and uh they're not able to be effective and 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 a start and a route occurs the chain of command is completely broken and there's just a slaughter and the killing continues until nightfall and one of the most significant things about this battle is that Valens himself is killed a Roman emperor killed on the field of battle I mean this is basically unheard of this this simply does not happen you know in a thousand years of Roman history you know this is this this is a highly unusual occurrence you know it, it would be like it would be like a American president dying on the field of battle that's never happened you know, it, it would just be an absolute bombshell to those who were who were a part of that country, and it was. Eastern Rome was thrown into into complete disarray over this. You know, it it caused a great deal of chaos, and it, it dropped the morale massively. Their emperor, extension of God on earth, was killed in battle by barbarians. Yeah, and so this this definitely showed that Rome was not what it once was. Uh, The Rome of antiquity, the Rome that Vegetius seems to worship so much in his writings, was not the Rome that engaged in this battle. And, And of course, there were several mistakes they made. They rushed into it, they underestimated their opponents, they neglected their drill, they neglected training, they arrived tired and still thought themselves the superior force. There was a lot of hubris involved in this particular battle and a lot of lack of preparation. And I think that's the lesson to all of us. You know, you, you do not want to arrive at a battle tired and worn out. And one of, the, one of the reasons that we talked about the earlier things in this episode is for this reason. If you're going on hikes in full kit, that's gonna give you a lot better endurance. If you're fighting, you know, in full kit, that's gonna give you better endurance. If you're, you're doing your drills and you're, and you're trying to expand what your body is capable of, when you actually get to the battle, you're not gonna be worn out and all those perks You know, because the Romans had their armor, they had that superior weaponry, and they were larger. They should have won. They should have won. Mathematically, they should have won. Except, you know, math isn't everything when it comes to war. So that, that's kind of, in a nutshell, the Battle of Adrianople. I highly recommend that if you want to delve a little bit more into this one, there's a podcast called The History of Rome, and I believe it's episode 153 and it's all about Adrianople, and it's it, he goes into some exceptional detail that we just weren't able to go into uh, because of the nature of our show. But if you're if you're kind of thirsty for some more info on that, I highly recommend his show. He does a great job. But that's what we have for today. That's that's the next level. This is uh, kind of Vegetius and, and, and our interpretation of how you can kind of try to get to that next level. And we appreciate you so much for joining us today. And I, I say us because I'm used to saying it, but uh, I I appreciate you joining me today. And uh, and we look forward to having thumbs back next time, absolutely. But in the meantime, if you're looking for some more Art of War gaming in your life, we have a Facebook and an Instagram account where we post uh, memes and, and uh, kind of little tidbits, trivia, about the, the period of history that we're studying. We also have player profiles on there. I'm getting low on those, by the way. Uh, uh, people have kind of started... Uh, I know we're not fighting as much, so it might be not as easy to think about it, but I'm starting to get low on pro player profiles. So if anybody listening to this is like, man, you know, I think it'd be cool to be on there or, or I've got a friend who I'd love to have on there, send us your their info, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com or, or anything else you want to talk about, you can always hit us up. And if you're looking for other uh, things to listen to, our sister shows on the Earworm Network are excellent. You've got uh, Fried Squirms, uh, where they talk about horror movies and they, they've been around for quite a long time. They've got a, and they, they do, do a great job. Of course, uh, Thumbs is Other Project, General Nerdery, where they where they talk about just general nerdery, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman, like all that good stuff. Um, so so it, definitely check those ones out as well. Thank you again for joining us today. Until next time, this has been Yaga Malark, signing out.